there's a few things to be said about relaxation, right? Relaxation is one of these things that's highly underrated. And what I mean by that is that, of course, when we think about improving ourselves or um, you know, personal growth or going to a workshop or whatever it is, we don't think relaxation. We think doing something, achieving something, going to the edge of something. Some people want to do that endlessly, right? And so relaxation as a tool is one of these very underappreciated and underutilized modalities simply because to most people um, based on you know their view and also the general work ethic and what's expected and many other factors don't relax enough and so within relaxation there's active relaxation and passive relaxation um, there's also within that you know certain domains that you can play with within your own system there's of course muscular relaxation well, I should actually start by saying there's mental relaxation, right? So a lot of value is placed on mental relaxation, both from a stress relief perspective and the meditation perspective and uh, a general focus and um, bringing clarity to your mind relaxation. So it's considered that one must um, discipline the monkey mind, so to speak. Right? Now, the monkey mind, of course, not everybody's monkey mind is created equal, no, number one, meaning some aspects of that super active mind um, treasure, right, uh, could be creativity. For instance, if you write or if you create something or you're in the middle of a project, there is a place for having a very active mental swirl, so to speak. But there's also the mental swirl that's really um, useless because it's just self-referencing or thought loops or going over things that are useless or sometimes I don't know if you've ever had that when you don't want to forget something but you don't write it down it just comes around it pings you on uh, on a regular basis don't forget the milk don't forget the milk don't forget the milk right there's so there's all of those things and in mental relaxation we are looking at what's useful, what's not useful, how can we discipline, and when I'm saying discipline, I'm saying this lightly, right? Because it's not a forceful thing necessarily. Some people go very forceful. They have like breath techniques and counting and, you know, holding nostrils and, you know, focusing on the breath or focusing on a flame or all of those are really good techniques when you want to work with your mind. Um, as you well know, because this is one of the things that Steve teaches really well, and it's my favorite technique of all techniques, do nothing, which of course is a Shinzen Yang uh, technique, um, that, that just uh, allows your mind to run itself you know, into the ground, so to speak. And that same kind of principle, by the way, applies in nonlinear, where you just let it happen till it's run its course and other things run, like run into it or, or run uh, concurrent and then take it over. But so disciplining your mind and relaxing your mind is one thing that's, that's important and that's useful. When you're relaxing the mind, you're typically looking for cessation of, you know, excessive thought or thought loops or obsessive thoughts or things like that. 
when we relax the body, we can look at things like muscular relaxation. And in muscular relaxation, we're looking at tension that's uh, in the moment. So that's, let's say, acute tension. And acute tension is how you hold your arms right now over your knees. That would be an acute tension, meaning you're doing it in this moment to keep your knees up. But if you relax that, let's say, and you feel a bit deeper, you'll find habitual tension. Tension patterns that come from having done certain tension activities long enough and typically combined with some emotional tension, right, that they now are habituated. And when you really feel a bit into the body, then those habituated tension patterns can be perceived, like we often have them on the pelvic floor, for instance, right, and other places where we're just a bit habitually tight, tight-assed, so to speak or tight solar plexus, or, or things like that. Right. Then, of course, there is a deeper relaxation where when the habitual and the acute has, um, you know, kind of dropped a bit, then there's things like, you know, tension you might hold in your organs, or one of the things that I always find really fascinating is, you know, the pericardium, the pericardium, I should pronounce this correctly, around the, uh, the heart has a layer of muscle that when you, you can actively relax and when you do that you can actually feel if you can feel your heart not everybody can but if you can feel your heart you can actually feel that there's a bit more space a bit more relaxation and that's for instance instrumental when you want to work with things like blood pressure for instance so there's deeper and deeper level of bodily relaxation there's of course also while we're talking about this the releasing and re relaxing of the fascia that, you know, you know what the fascia is, that, that thin skin over the muscles. You see it on a chicken breast very disgustingly. <laughs> I, I hate that so much. <laughs> this is one of the grossest things in my existence. It's the, it's the fascia on a chicken breast. For some reason that grosses me out like nothing, right? But so we have that chicken breast fascia all over and that holds stuff. <laughs> and so that stuff, interestingly enough, this we, I'm coming back to why you have hallucinations in relaxation, right? That stuff, of course, holds a lot of information. And, it, and then, of course, there's the nervous system, which in itself holds all this information and transmits uh, information in the form of nerve impulses. And when the nerves fire, information gets transmitted. When the nerves... Uh, no longer fire as much or the thing that the muscles relax, you know, different things happen. The fascia can be relaxed, blah, blah, blah. So there's all of that bodily relaxation, which then is connected with the emotional relaxation, which is a feeling of well-being and a feeling of not being anxious, right? And feeling of um, not feeling doom or depression or whatever you might feel habitually within those tension patterns that hold you know, thought, emotion, physical tension, they typically hold all of that. So when we do long progressive relaxations like we did today, and we did passive relaxation, right, guided passive relaxation, where I guided you progressively through the passive relaxation of the body, where you just allow the body to dissolve what it can by just bringing attention on certain parts and also by kind of wading things out, 
this is one of those good things that um, you, you can know is that if you can just wait it out, meaning you just don't pop up and start itching and do things, eventually your body will let go you know, by itself. Of course, you can also go to a massage or things like that. That's a more act, you know, somebody actively releasing things from your fascia and your muscles. But we did long progressive guided relaxation, which is a passive relaxation. So right there, that mental thing goes down and your interoception, meaning your ability to feel what's happening in the body goes up. So, you know, blah, 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 goes down. Feeling and, and, and with that also, of course, dissolving and releasing goes up. So within that process, you, if you are even slightly visual, you'll have visual, whatever, visual activity washing up. It's entirely normal and logical and positive that deeper layers can be perceived and wash up and potentially wash out. Not everything washes out, but often when you have this visual material, it is almost like dreaming while awake. You know? mm -hmm. um, I have that in meditation. It's, it's, the, it's the trippiest thing. It's like I sit down, I close my eyes, I start meditating, maybe five, 10 minutes in, it's like being in a movie. It's black and white though, interestingly enough, but it's, uh, but it's so crazy visual that I love doing it because it's always like, what is going to be today? <laughs> you know? And it's all, sometimes it's very often, it's like as if I was driving in the almost dark in the sunset along a road and I see like trees or mountains or, or, or meadows or things like that. But sometimes it's totally random stuff. So that's normal, good. It could also be weird shit. Yeah. So just take that as a sign that your mental relaxation was such that you could feel and, and perceive and that there was probably a fair share of dissolving and release in the deeper layers of the body right? and in the deeper layers of the emotions. So if that's something that's, that in the aftermath has positive effects, then that's something that you could build into your day. There's a lot of... Uh, research and literature and talk now about what they call non-sleep deep rest, NSDR. Yes, and it, yeah, they want to call it NSDR because yoga nidra for some people feels like they're exercising or something, but it's the same as a yoga nidra or a guided hypnotic journey or guided visualization. So non-sleep deep rest is that state in which you don't go into sleep, but you have all the benefits, the you know, the physical as well as emotional, mental benefits. So if, if that's something that's enjoyable, then there's loads and loads of, you know, uh, even on YouTube, the recorded things out there that you can just lay down for 20 minutes for and do. And uh, that's quite good. It is a common thing that people run into and the more people are, let's say, ballet dancers or five rhythms people, for instance, have a really hard time in the beginning because they're so used to the exteroception, meaning the external validation of their movement and it having to look pretty and it having to be sexy and feel good. And 
Of course, nonlinear is none of those things because it's not a dance modality. It's a somatic movement method where you're actually excavating whatever shows up, including the ugly and the messy and the not sexy and the, you know, slimy and <laughs> pukey and whatever um, shows up. So that just takes a little bit. And the way to do that is to really firmly feel inside. And so the moving what you're feeling modality is the modality where you're simply giving movement to whatever shows up. In a fairly short period of time, you'll give up on trying to look or feel sexy and you get down to, you know, whatever there is. And there's something incredibly liberating there. Yeah. It's just a different thing. It's not that the other thing is bad. It's nice to feel sensual and sexy and swagger and you know all of that it's that's it's not that you shouldn't do that it's just you want to have the full uh, a, array of options available and uh, I remember way 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 back when this is slightly off topic but not quite um, when I really started quite a bit of public teaching and like fairly large groups of public teaching I ran into that a bit, that I was very self-conscious on stage and, you know, just not that happy um, being seen. And so a friend of mine suggested I should do some improv classes. And so I went to the Groundlings because the Groundlings were a block from where I lived, having no idea that the Groundlings are this, you know, amazing whatever institution that produces SNL stars and every, you know, every person freshly caught from Iowa who wants to become an actor goes to the groundling. And they were all in their early 20s and I must have been in my early 30s back then, which seemed ancient <laughs> compared to the freshly caught beauty queens and kings from, you know, the, the, what do they call them, the flyover states is what they sometimes so cynically call them. So. The heartland, I think, is a much nicer way to say it. And so I did uh, improv classes, and you have, to, you have to audition for those. And, you know, I mean, I had no, I didn't even know what was up and down. It was so bizarre. And then, of course, I have an accent. And when you have an accent, uh, doing impression in other, in other slangs is essentially impossible. Because when you're Austrian, you're trying to do Texan, you're not going to fare very, very well, right? So it was very, very embarrassing and very traumatic, actually. <laughs> it was super traumatic. Every Wednesday, I was like, I'm not going. I'm not doing this again. This is the worst thing ever. It is super painful. But I'm saying all of this to say I stuck with it. And even though I hated it and even though after SNL standards, I sucked massively. It f liberated my body from having to look pretty or for me, for I had, after it, I had like no embarrassment left, right? When I walk in here and you say to me, you're leaking, I'm like, eh, well, whatever, right? <laughs> like, I mean, I don't even have any flashback of any, you know, whatever, whatever could be leaking. <laughs> When you're a woman, shit, you know, you associate all kinds of horrible stuff with it. You know, I, I'd be just like, yeah, whatever, right? Because that's what you learn in improv is like you, I was so thoroughly humiliated um, and I was so thoroughly put through the ringer of that, um, that 
it allowed me to be have a freedom in my body that I never knew I could have. And then that freedom translated into being able to go on a stage and make a move and speak a certain way and move my entire body and demonstrate something with the body without that horrible self-consciousness that comes from having to look sexy or slinky or have a swagger and and things like that. And so I'm super grateful for that experience. I'm saying this to say when you do nonlinear, that's a version of that where you give up for a moment that need for it to be a certain way. And in that, there's a whole other freedom. which You can feel that these things that we hold in our body are, they can be released. And you have agency over undoing those patterns. You know, I had ag agency over undoing the Austrian pattern. Right? And the Austrian pattern is very specific. It's very proper. Yeah, and very suppressed in a certain way. And, um, you know, I, I just undid it through sheer, um, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, a bit willingness to, to, to butt up against it again and again and again. And so, interestingly enough, the other day I went to the, the Austrian consulate for the Austrian national holiday. We have such a thing. Um, does a reception. And I never, I've never gone. And I've always looked down the nose at it. But for some reason, I, I've decided that I was going to go. And then um, I was all geared up for it. They canceled it last minute. But as I geared up for it, um, my entire body went into this Austrian mode. Like I was picking clothes. I was considering how to dress and I could feel the restriction and the constriction and the the tightness and the sharpness of that mode that was required for me to be an appropriate Austrian citizen in Vienna, you know, while I was at university and things like that. And so we have those and we could reactivate them but we don't have to. And that's the that that's the thing that I'm saying there to you is you can keep the sexy, slinky swagger, but you can add to the repertoire and free other parts of you that might come in handy one day. The eternal child, of course, is one of those classic Jungian archetypes where we are looking at stunted growth, right? where we're looking at areas within the human makeup that are not uh, developed. Right. And then within the eternal child, Peter Pan, people sometimes call it, you know, or things like that. And within the eternal child, there is that odd relationship of, I'm trying to make this very precise. Within the eternal child, there is the rebellion against the father or mother figure. Right. So typically the eternal child, um, you, you sometimes hear it in the Latin version, uh, puer eternus, you know, the, the eternal boy child who has a dependent relationship on the mother. And then puella eterna, the eternal girl child who has a dependent relationship with the father. And so within that is that dependency where mommy or daddy, you know, the opposite sex, is on one end 
fixing things for you, making it all right, supporting you, but also, of course, keeping you small, keeping you stunted, keeping you from growing up. And we all know people like that, and we probably also all have some aspects of that in our own um, experience where there are certain ways we don't want to grow up and we don't want to leave the safety of the parental control as well as benevolent guidance. Right? So there is that. But with the dependence on mommy or daddy comes, of course, the fuck you. Right? Comes the, well, you know, you're not really my daddy or, or, or I hate you for, for me having to ask you things. So there's a rebellion in there and the dependence. And we all know that in people who can't properly grow up. And then, of course, the Puella Eterna, the eternal female child, which we did because it was feminine archetypes. There is that thing where on one end, uh, women are slightly, um, you know, they use their, even their, their intimate partner to fix things for them or to pay for things or to take care of them. And they're entirely happy to be dependent because it allows them to not have to uh, develop a capacity for making your own money or your own decisions or balance your own check, check account, checking account or whatever, right? But on the other hand, there's a, there's a deep disdain for that um, because you're not free. Our relationship to our parents, like I was saying earlier in the day, often hasn't caught up with what it is now, which is all of us in here are well beyond dependence on our parents, technically speaking, right? We're well, we're well able to fly the nest, um, supply ourselves with funds, income, status, um, help ourselves and all of that. But often we haven't really caught up, which is what this process is partly about. It's mostly about the liberation of the lineage, but it's also about coming current with who we are now and some of us here are our parents, right? So who we are and how it is to be a parent and seeing your parents in a different light, not as that puella eterna or puer eternos where you're essentially still looking at your parent as either the people who transgressed against you or who should take care of you or um, who have stunted your growth or who you have broken free from because you don't want to be stunted. And there's a lot in there. This is an endless process of excavation where you can really look at, can you see your parents for who they are now, which is totally different people than they were when they raised you. And not only are they totally different people than when they raised you, they have also grown and learned and been through hard knocks and had losses and grievances and maybe lost their own parents by now. Most of our parents probably lost their parents by now. And um, so they are, they are not, not where you hold them. So your view of your parents also stunts your parents' growth, so to speak, psychologically as well as, um, let's say, psychically. Right. When you hold somebody in a place they no longer are, you are holding them back you know, uh, and you're stunting their growth. Because when you go home and you behave the way you behaved with 15, 
you are essentially also forcing your parents into start into a dynamic that is an old dynamic. So it's both, right? It's the Puella Eterna makes her parents the parents that they were 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And so when we do this process, one of the positive aspects is that you become current with looking at your parents dead or alive as they are now, which is humans. Um, you know, I heard like snippets of conversations. Um, I always forget about this because my parents are still married, but many people have seen their parents go through multiple relationships by now. Many people no longer have their parents married to each other and they've seen their parents as people who fuck up relationships and cheat on their next spouse or, you know, suddenly run off with the secretary. I never had that because my parents are 81 and still married. But in an odd way, when the parents no longer have the status quo, it's easier to see them as different adults than when your parents are still doing the same stuff they did, relationally speaking, when you grew up. So there's, there's a real richness in there in, in, you know, kind of presencing these questions and considering them. And if you still are lucky enough to have your parents alive, it, it will be interesting to see how that shapes the next time you see them or the next time they call you. And often when we do this practice, um, there is things where people got suddenly get calls from their parents or they call their parents or things occur around the parents that illuminate some of that. So that's, I would say, how the eternal child in a certain way plays into this you know, consideration. And of course, in the more mystery exploration of this five day, there is an, you know, it's hard to speak about it. There is, there is that dimension of being able to set somebody free through letting them go or through liberating them or through liberating their body and through liberating their habit patterns out of your body. There's an enormous power in that um, that can be also really worked with without having to get too heady. Well, it depends on what kind of a God you grow up with, of course, right? Most of us, not all of us, but most of us grew up with a male godhead, so to speak, right? Not, not everybody did, but, but most people orient towards the great father in the sky, so to speak, right? In, in various ways, it doesn't matter if it's a prophet or um, a bodhisattva or, you know, uh, the son of God or whatever, but it's typically a male figure. And of course, in most, let's say, traditional, particularly when you're a child, religious exploration, you are giving authority to that male figure, right? You pray to that male figure, you hope that that male figure fixes shit for you when you're in trouble, right? Um, you behave well so that the male figure gives you boons and, and frees you from trouble and, you know, all of that. So. There's a lot, there's a lot in the way, uh, let's say, conventional religion um, develops within your psyche that is exactly like how you relate to a hopefully benevolent father, but also a father who might discipline you or who you don't always understand. And, 
you know, it's the exact same thing. It's just that it's not as tangible and it's a bit further out. And then, of course, as we develop and we have spiritual beliefs, often, as you well know, people pick spiritual traditions all the way down to cults or spiritual traditions outside of their, let's say, home religion that play out their parental drama. I mean, how many people do we know who followed some guru who then did the same heinous shit as their parents did, right? Uh, just in a more spiritual way. Uh, and, and all of that, because it's so deeply connected that our spiritual, religious, metaphysical orientation mirrors our parental orientation or is the counteraction to the parental orientation or once again the rebellion against that or the wanting to come home to something that you didn't have at home a benevolent father figure who loved you regardless of what you did you know and who will redeem you regardless of what you did there's something very beautiful in that uh, but it's definitely fraught with <laughs> with stuff you know there's an incredibly beautiful um, book, The Smain of Rain on Dust, yeah, of grief and praise. And that book saved me during the fire because um, he has such an evocative, I would highly recommend you get it. It's, you can probably get it down at Bart's. That's where I got several copies. <laughs> um, so Martin Prechtel, who is an amazing... I'm mean, just an amazing writer and supposedly I don't know him, but I know people who study with him who speak incredibly highly of him. Um, he comes from a, a shaman tradition and um, he talks about a South American shaman tradition. He talks about the unwillingness in our culture of grieving properly and loudly and fully. And there's actually, there's only one recording of Martin Prechtel speaking anywhere to be found. It's on YouTube. It's called On Grief and Praise. And it's, uh, it's such a beautiful recording because he talks about, and he does so in the book, about living there by, uh, I think it's Lake Atitlan. Um, and, you know, in indigenous communities and anytime somebody dies, it's this massive thing where people get totally fucked up hammered, crying, puking on the side of the road, you know, like ripping their hair out, pounding the dust, the whole thing. The whole thing about that is, and this is the key to what you're dealing with, is that grief is praise, meaning you only grieve the things you love. And so very much like what Sarah was saying yesterday, the that that feeling of having lost something or almost lost something that you loved so deeply and held so deeply is so intensely painful that we don't allow ourselves to go there. And so grief is this very elusive emotion that comes from acknowledging how much you love something. Oh. And so that's the way in, is that you allow yourself to feel the love, the longing, right? the, the deep longing for that union, the union with your mother, with God, 
you know, mother being also God, right? It's like for children, your parents, you come from your parents, your parents are God and that they, and they are love and they're the, the, the source of all goodness originally. Right? And that's something so profound that we don't allow ourselves to feel that because it feels like it's going to kill us. So in that book and in the general, you know, in, in many traditions, uh, the reason there's wailing and there's women who come that will tear their, their, their shawls and rip their hair out and, you know, is that you sometimes need kind of a cheerleading team of grievers because it's the, it's, you, you're terrified, you're petrified, you're stuck in, in that pain and other people can help you let that loose. When you are by yourself and you're trying to grieve, um, the feeling is that if you do it, you won't be able to continue. Right? There's, there's a very specific feeling where it feels like you're going to just unravel and you will never be able to pick yourself back up, which is why it can't be done. Uh, and that's why they are substitute wailers, right, and grievers in many traditions, so that you don't have to uh, see it through to the very end, which is this abyss of grief and loss and longing and, and um, you know, unmet things. So you kind of have that um, support so it, you don't have to go to the very bottom of that well, so to speak. Yeah. I remember very distinctly there was a day, maybe three or four days after the fire, I'd just come home. The house burned on a Monday. I came home on Wednesday. And, you know, the, the, the winds were insane still and all of those things. And I knew, uh, you know, without a doubt that I pretty much won't have a moment to really feel the, the depth of the despair uh, once I had to spring into action, so to speak, because I had animals that didn't have food and there was no water and there was still burning oak trees on the property and I was afraid that this thing would catch fire because the oak tree was still burning out there. And I um, went and grabbed a blanket from my neighbor, Rod, whose house hadn't burned, and I set myself down there on the grass, which was just, you know, dust and, and gunk and smelled horrible from all the stuff that had burned. And I put the blanket around me and I sat there till the sun had gone up completely. And I sat there the entire time just observing the rubble of all that I had ever owned right? and, the, and, and, and the gruesomeness of that. And I remember specifically that there was no, there was nothing, there was no grief, right? It was just this, whoa, fuck, right? And... And not till much later when there were other people around and um, I was somewhat more held, could I actually grieve? Because it takes other people to hold you so you can unravel it. And um, I think that's, that's a very, very instrumental thing when you want to locate deep grief and that upwelling. And of course, it's not considered normal to show grief that deep you know, amongst people because you're supposed to be strong and hold it together and not embarrass other people. And by the way, you know that, right, that there's nothing worse than when somebody has upwelling of grief and you 
hold them and you comfort them because they will pull themselves together. Which is why once again the, the grieving the grieving team, the wailing team will do it with you so that you don't have to pull yourself together. That that's the instrumental piece there. Is that you have um, other people egg you on, cheer you on, support you, however you wanna say it, so that you don't just go, Okay, that was enough, you know, and and move on before it's time. You know. So because there is something also true about not losing your shit in a moment of loss right it's not always possible to lose your shit in a moment of loss so of course you couldn't because you had to survive and surviving beats all other emotions and it beats all other um, mental health things right so yeah that's where it comes from and it is epigenetic and it's hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years of sucking it up and moving on you know and and that's that's real that was the other thing that i got very deeply in touch with when i was i was trying to sift you know that people would come by and it's like the shit that happens when you when there's a wildfire right people are trying to be so helpful but they're Sometimes, some of the things are really lovely, but some of the things are really not so great. So somebody brought me a sifter. Some volunteers somewhere in Agora Hills made sifters. I still have it. I dry my uh, uh, calendula on it. <laughs> so that's how I repurpose it. But it was a sifter. It was a little hard on it. And so you're supposed to sift through your shit to see if anything's left. Which I did because, you know, you kind of know where things are. And I knew where all my jewelry had been. And so I had my little Tyvek, uh, you know, hazmat suit on like they tell you to do. And my gloves and my, my mask and the whole thing. And shit is still burning. And I'm sifting. And in that moment, I, I had that thing that we just did today, like that lineage thing where I felt all the women in my lineage who had lost everything to wars and destruction and, um, you know, natural catastrophes. And as long back as I could feel, there was nothing but that. that and it doesn't matter what, what ethnicity you are, that is the reality of human people, or human you know, beings, is nothing but natural disasters, loss, war, genocide, um, destruction right and it's the it's it's the people who survive who pass that on to the next generation and to, and then those people who survive pass it on to their next generation and so that that lineage of utter loss and destruction and working against adversity to birth another generation that's who we come from we're all the the you know, the, the children of survivors. And otherwise there would not have been procreation. And that's a pretty heavy thing to consider. But it's also, um, as I was saying to Ari yesterday, there's a, real, um, there's a real opportunity in the way that we now have tools, right? And who we are in this moment in time as humans in this room, we actually have opportunities to break those things for real 
like actual skills and actual tools to not perpetuate that. You know? And certain things we can't escape. That's what you need surrender for. But certain things you can break and therefore liberate everyone all the way back to the beginning of time. Is a way to support um, the the praising of someone's life that is a very outward, where where people support each other by grieving. Yeah, you know, and there is cultures in which that is still done properly, less and less so. When I was about eighteen or nineteen, I lost my closest friend to some very aggressive cancer, and when she had died. Uh, the parents put her in her favorite clothes on a camping bed in their living room. And that sounds, for most people, that sounds horrendous. But what happened was the entire, all her friends, all her parents' friends, the entire neighborhood came. And everybody sat around her body and told stories and cried and held the parents and sang and played the song she loved and... Um, you know, wiped her, wiped her nose and combed her hair and did the whole thing. And when it was time to pick, you know, they, they come from the funeral home and pick her up. They gathered flowers from all around the neighborhood and they filled the entire casket with flowers and they sang as they carried her to the car, allowing their, her parents, right, to have an appropriate support in that grieving. And that's that's a kind of a grieving that allows people to not have to, you know, process it three months later or eight months later or never, right? It's the immediacy of the thing.